So I love that story. That's a good one. Um, so if you remember, we're in the middle of a sermon series looking at healing in the Bible. And today's story is what is known as the Gerasene Demoniac, which I must say is one heck of a title for a story. I love it. The Gerasene Demoniac. All right. Uh, and it's a really interesting story. It's fascinating. And many, many of you might be familiar with it, but a lot of you chances are, have no clue what the heck to do with it. Uh, So let's dive in together and see if we can uh, piece together a little bit of what's happening here before we start looking at some of the implications of what might be happening. So first of all, and foremost, let's put on the back burner the question whether or not there's demons and demonic possession and all that. Right. So we're in the story of Mark. And Mark is the consummate storyteller. And so if you think about like an English class, right, to really read a story, you need to immerse yourself in that literary world. And so if, say, for example, you're reading Lord of the Rings, right? If the only thing running through your head the whole time is, but there's no such thing as hobbits, you're not going to get everything out of the story you might otherwise, right? Right. If, you, uh, if that's the thing that's going through your head the whole time, you're not going to get a lot out of it. Right? The major, one of the major things with uh, a work of literature is suspension of disbelief. Right? It's, regardless of whether or not you th- there are hobbits in the world, you have to put yourself in that narrative world, and only then can you get so much more out of the story. Right? And so back to our story, I invite you to table this question of, are there demons? Is there demonic possession? Um, I invite you to, as best you can, set that particular question aside so that you can more fully enter Mark's narrative world that he's bringing to us. And uh, I think you'll see that there's plenty to glean from this story, regardless of whether or not uh, you were to buy into the demons aspect of it. So Jesus, he's doing his thing, sailing around the Sea of Galilee and crosses over to the Gentile side and runs into this wild man who is possessed by a demon. Now, this demon is a very curious thing, is it not? It gives him superhuman strength, right? And so they try and chain him up and he just snaps the fetters, right? And so everybody's terrified of him because he's so strong. He's, and so he's banished out into the outskirts of society to go live by himself in a cemetery, which is that not just so fitting for a story about a demon, right? To be set in a cemetery. And then the author gives us this other interesting tidbit, which is fascinating. These demons are making him slash himself with rocks, engaged in this self-mutilation, which is this crucial detail, especially when we're looking at interpreting this story, because it reinforces for us that this possession is harmful and damaging, which, although it might not seem it on its face, is not a given. Because does anybody remember the story of, for example, Samson? Right? We've got the Spirit of God came down and he became supernaturally strong and, for example, broke out of chains and stuff. And he's very much in the world of the Bible seen as a hero, right? So it's not at all immediately clear that if some sort of spirit comes on you and you have supernatural strength, that that's such a bad thing. 
But notice what that detail that we had in the story shows us is that Mark, the author, wants to make sure that we know that this is a bad thing, that this is a negative, damaging thing by showing us this self-mutilation that the demon is making this guy do. He's, uh, he's killing him, right? The demon is killing him. He's, it's already killed his social relationships, right? He's already isolated and cut off from everybody in his community, and now we know it's individually killing him as well. So, stick a pin in that. We're coming back to it. So Jesus demands to know this demon's name. And this is really curious, this really peculiar answer. He says, my name is Legion, for we are many. Now here's where a lot of interpreters um, get thrown off. And frankly, this is where I think a lot of interpreters get it completely wrong. So think about the word legion. Not the most common word, but it's, you know, it's a word in English, right? If you were to use it into a sentence, it would mean many, right? Like, um, just like that second half of the demon sentence, right? For we are many. And so we have, for example, like a legion of photographers or, for example, a legion of boom, right? It's modern English. Legion came to mean many precisely because of this story, and the thing is, at Jesus' time, the word used here doesn't have the meaning of many. It has one meaning and one meaning only. And so a legion in the ancient world was a unit of the Roman army with thousands of soldiers. So you can see, you can see where they got to many, right? There's thousands of soldiers. That's a lot of soldiers. So obviously it gets to many. But you can also see how the meanings evolved from this core original meaning at the time. Because if we say that in this story, all that legion is referring to is many, that's getting to be anachronistic. That's putting our own meanings from modern day back into the old times. Because remember, this word means precisely one thing. A giant horde of Roman soldiers. And so think of it like if you were to use the word, like, uh, my name is platoon, or my name is squadron, right? It's, it's, you get the sense, okay, there's a lot of people, right? There's a lot of, it's a large number, but it's inevitably this militaristic image. It's this imperial image. It's, it, you cannot escape the fact that the demon, in talking about itself, and talking about its multiplicity is relating itself to the Roman Empire and their military domination. Now, who is the empire that is currently subjugating the Jews in the New Testament? Rome. Interesting, I've heard that name before, like 10 seconds ago. Fascinating. The country whose armies are being referenced happens to be the demon's name. Fascinating. Um, if we only knew something about the region that, in which the story was set, like, I don't know, maybe, oh, if only we knew that it was 
say, this hotbed of anti-imperial revolts at the time, and where there were many different people who rose up and tried to destroy and cast off the Roman Empire, and and then the Roman Empire uh, went and sent their giant armies to go and massacre everybody to make an example of them, and it happened time and time again. And so there's a lot of resistance and hatred and discontent just festering in the area. That would be a helpful bit of context to know if we knew that. And so remember at this time, Legion had exactly one meaning, a giant group of Roman Empire military, which is intimately bound up in the empire, intimately bound up in its military occupation that they are living smack dab in the middle of, in the world's hotspot of anti-imperial discontent. And so what does Jesus do? He banishes the demons. He banishes legion. Casts them out of the man into the quintessentially unclean animal for the Jews, the pig. And these pigs, basically like lemmings, just go and rush off a cliff and then fall into the sea and drown themselves. So pop quiz. Pop quiz time. Do we know, what other story from the Bible do we know where evil hordes let's say maybe legions or, you know, great enemy armies uh, go rushing forth and then they all drown in the sea and that saves the day. The Exodus. Yes, the Exodus story. We have a certain band of runaway slaves called the Israelites who, of course, were enslaved by the Egyptian empire. And the empire refused to give them their freedom, so God broke them out of slavery and have helped them run away. And as a result, the army of the empire, a legion, if you will, a horde, right, was chasing after these runaway slaves. But of course, the God parted the Sea of Reeds for the slaves to walk across and get to freedom. And then the big old Egyptian army was like, we're going to come get you still, and went into the sea. And God made the sea close up and drown them all in the sea, thus demonstrating God's sovereignty and control over the empire. Because here's the thing about empires, right? Empires say that they are the be-all, end-all. That, that's in their DNA. That's baked into it. That They're the best thing ever. They deserve your soul loyalty. They're supposed to trump out anything else in your life in terms of loyalty, in terms of allegiance, in terms of priorities, And in this Exodus story, God says no. And look, at the time of the Egyptian empire, they are the most powerful force in the world. Like, literally, the most powerful anywhere in the entire world. And the Bible insists that no, God, in fact, is more powerful, is more worthy of our devotion, of our loyalty, of our allegiance than the empire. So we have these resonances of the Exodus story that are being deployed by Mark, the storyteller. And it's fascinating because he's talking about this Egyptian, or referencing this Egyptian army, this whole horde of people drowning in the sea, which shows God's sovereignty, God's power, God's control, God's preeminence, God's priority over the evil empire who is oppressing God's people. Does any of that sound familiar from our story this morning? Right. Now remember that thing we stuck a pin in earlier, right? 
the author goes out of his way to illustrate this man slashing himself with rocks to make sure that we have the sense that this is a negative thing, this being possessed by this demon legion. And so trying to illustrate that even though this man is incredibly powerful, superhumanly powerful, even though the demons give him that amount of strength, they're also damaging him, literally tearing him apart. And so think of what might be said about the Roman Empire. So this is later than the Egyptian Empire, but now we have basically the same thing. Rome, too, has superhuman strength because up to that point in history, there is nothing on earth that has been more powerful than the Roman Empire, ever. And there's something really appealing about that power. There's something really appealing about that. You're always on the winning side, right? You can do what you want or need or think's in your best interest without anybody else having to be on board. And like the Roman Empire, they have these noble, lofty virtues that they talk about, right? They, they claim that they're bringing peace and justice and light and civilization and order and goodness into the world through conquering the world. The empire has this really deep allure but remember the demon. It's too easy to, fo- to buy into the demon siren's song. Because yeah, the demon does give that man super, supernatural powers, right? It's super strong. There's a lot, that, a lot of potential baked in there, right? But the demon, Legion, is also mutilating his body at the same time. It's destroying him. That's the cost of having the demon dwelling within you, internalized in in the very way that you see the world and you interact with the world. It's saying, don't buy into that seductive logic of empire. And so in light of all that, what is this we have here at at the climax of this story? We've got an exorcism, sure, yeah. The man is individually healed, but more broadly than that, we have a restoration. We have healing. There's, now there's all sorts of levels that you can read this on. That's the hallmark of great literature is there's so many levels in great literature. And so, for example, in the vein of what we were just talking about, on the systemic level, right, Jesus performs this symbolic act reinforcing God's priority, God's agency over even the most fearsome political and military system the world's ever seen. Or on the societal level, this man's been driven out of society because of his condition, thoroughly alienated, just severed from any relationships that bring meaning to his life. Separated from his family, from his cultural institutions, from any support systems. And then what happened at the end of the story? Everybody came, and he was just fine. He was normal again. And so he went around to all the cities in his area, And he was normal again. He's being restored to his community. Or obviously there's the level of the individual, right? Where the individual person is no longer suffering in this way. We've got all these different levels 
these layers of healing kind of rolled into this one story. And I think it's significant. I think that's significant as we're thinking about healing in our world and in our lives. Because there's many different levels on which this healing can occur. And that we can find restoration of what is broken. And sometimes, especially as Christians, we can get too myopic of a vision, too, too much of a tunnel vision, right? Of To see the varied ways that God might be at work in the world. To see all the different levels and how God might be healing and restoring the world on all these different planes, not just the individual. So this week, perhaps may you expand your gaze to be wider than just the personal, individual level. May you expand your gaze to see the ever-expanding ripples of connection with all sorts of the levels of life and your world. And may you keep watch for healing that is happening even outside of that place where you expect it or want it to come. May it be so.